This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. We have lots going on when it comes to the sports world. Absolutely. So much going on because it's Super Bowl weekend. It's the big game. It is the big game. We were in Miami this week. We're going to bring you next week a lot of the conversations that we had down there. But this week, we had a little bit of a preview from the CEO and chairman of Hard Rock International. It's their stadium uh, that the big game is being played in. And we stay with sports. We've got a great story from Ira Boudway about Joe Tsai. He is the majority owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Only last year became that. And it happened, Jason, of course, talk about timing, just before a controversy that would threaten the NBA's relationship with its most important overseas market. We're talking about China. Well, and we talk about China and the NBA also with Chris Paul. He's an NBA star, also the president of the Players Association. So he has some thoughts on that as well as building out his own business. Speaking of presidents, there's a lot of mansions down in Palm Beach just near the president's private club. We're talking about Mar-a-Lago and for some reason, they're not selling. And speaking of Mar-a-Lago, we know a lot of business gets done there, including about trade. We're going to bring you another angle on the U.S. trade war with China. Phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal, it is done, Jason. We know that. Tariffs still exist on some Chinese goods. And despite the on-again, off-again tensions between the two countries, a move last year by the U.S. actually gave Chinese solar panels a bit of a gift. It did. And this is one of these unexpected benefits or yeah. detriments, depending on your side of the equation, to these trade negotiations. Brian Eckhouse is here with us. Uh, he's going to tell us all about it. So... This is a booming business, obviously. We talk a lot about alternative energy, and yet I'm not sure anybody knew this was really the forefront or a flashpoint in the trade wars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the first tariffs that Trump imposed was on solar panels. Uh, It was two years ago this month, and it definitely rejiggered the entire industry. In the run-up to him making that decision, the market slowed down considerably because we knew he was going to impose tariffs. But how big? How long? And so it really slowed down the development of solar farms in the desert, on rooftops, but more the big projects in the desert around the country. And then he imposed these tariffs. And people were like, wait a minute, like, we didn't do anything to deserve this. Uh, this is a fight between U.S. and China. But going back a little bit further, uh, the U.S. makes very, very few panels. It relies very heavily on Asia. Uh, Chinese companies are the big makers of these product, products. Not only from China, a little from China, but also from Malaysia, from Thailand, from Vietnam. And so it's been a years-long sort of fight between uh, the countries on this. It predated Trump, but then he put his imprint on it two years ago. Well, that's I think some history is important here in terms of the U.S. trying to develop right its solar industry, Brian, and then you know allegations or realities of the Chinese undercutting in terms of pricing and really kind of owning this market. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, China has dominated this market because they have the cheapest panels out there. Right. Or in many cases, the cheapest panels. And it's hard to compete with that. Uh, it's more expensive in the U.S. to develop it and to buy it in the U.S. So if you're a you know, solar farm developer and you're, you're competing against wind, natural gas-fired power plants, you know, you're trying to go and you know, inspire this boom of solar, right. you're going to go with probably the cheapest form of solar. Low-cost provider, right? That means China. That means Asia. And they've come to dominate the market. And by the time Trump came in to impose these tariffs, there was so little manufacturing of solar panels in this country. A lot of people had to depend on Asia for it. Mm -hmm. And so take us to this moment where folks from the industry, they start literally like calling their member of Congress. They start lobbying. They start doing all the things that an industry Mm -hmm. does to try and get some action. They win, they think, and then they start to realize, wait a second, this wasn't exactly what we thought we were going to get. Yeah, exactly. So when, he, when Trump imposed the tariffs two years ago, it was on the entire industry. And developers of big farms were like, wait a minute, like, a lot of the U.S. manufacturers focus greatly on rooftops. And we do these farms in the desert, elsewhere in the country, and these panels are much bigger than the ones that they use. They're much heavier. You can have one person, I couldn't do it, but one person bringing up a solar panel onto a roof. The ones goes in the, in the desert, you need two people to do it. They're very, very heavy. You're talking about American utilities, right? Really needed access to these really, really big panels. Well, yeah. If they're going to buy the solar power, yes, they do. Right. But it's, it's developers of these projects that do it on behalf or for these utilities in that case. Right. Um, so when this happened, like they, these, the industry that develops these big farms said, wait a minute, like 
this is attacking us, I think you had the wrong sort of culprit here. So they tried to go get an exemption. And they said you should exempt all solar farms in this country. They got a no-go on that. So they thought, how can we go and sort of craft an exemption to this policy that would help us but not hurt the overall policy? So they requested, it's very, very complicated. So they requested an exemption on a certain kind of solar panel for big farms in the desert, not rooftop, a certain size, a certain amount of uh, electricity generated. And they fought for more than a year for this. And then June of last year, out of nowhere, the administration says, wait a minute, we'll give this to you. But they gave a blanket exemption to all two-sided solar panels, so that, and which basically neutered or like negated a lot of the strength of the efficacy of the actual tariff. So we're getting a little wonky. So yes. it's supposed to be very narrow. Now, no, no, this is important, I think, because, right, this is what it's all about. But it was the biggest versions. I think they're called bifacials, yes. right? These uh, two-sided panels. So that's what they wanted, right, and which are used by utilities and others. And yet it became a much broader plan. Yeah, so by, you can do bifacial on small and big. Okay. But, like, they wanted uh, the exemption for large. The largest ones. Large bifacial. And the exemption was for everything. And by doing so, you could even you know, use the two-sided panels on the roof. You could do so theoretically. So you could then buy solar panels for any, uh, you know, two-sided for anything, and then get around the tariffs. And that's Brian Eckhouse chatting about the business of solar, some of those unintended consequences. This is a smart story. Well, unintended consequences, Jason, is so right on the money because I think we talk about trade, we use it in these broad macro terms, but it's complicated and there are a lot of moving parts. And when you go and strive for something, you think X, Y, Z is going to get done and then something completely else gets done. Yeah, you set something in motion and you're not sure what the ramifications are going to be. The latest issue includes a strategy section, Jason, and it's all about kind of advice for people who are working maybe alone in groups, people all that good stuff. People who don't have such a lovely partner <laughs> like we do every day to bounce things off of. Can you imagine if we had to Skype each other all the time? But that's what folks are doing. They are doing that. Let's bring in someone who was involved in the section, Dimitra Kassanides. Um, Dimitra, good to have you here. So many people are working on their own and they need a little support. Yeah. I mean, we've got so many freelancers out there, right? Or yes. people working remotely. Maybe they work for a company, but they're far away. Um, and so there are a handful of startups that are catering to, to, you know, you might even be a PhD student writing your dissertation, and you're a bit of a procrastinator. You know, I know you guys don't know too much about procrastination. I mean, because it's also like... <laughs> also fast. Uh, but um, so there, we write about these companies. They're kind of like these online work clubs, and you log on, and you find a work buddy. And you can either go the focus mate route, that's one of the companies we write about, which is like 50 minute increments, quick, quick, quick. Or you can really commit to like 3.5 hour work sessions with an online buddy. So Demetra, tell us how it works. I mean, this is literally like you and I would log in from our home offices yeah. and like hang out. It's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. I mean, basically that's it. There's an idea behind it that a, a strong motivator is simply the presence of somebody else observing you while you're working or kind of aware of whether you're working or not. You know, if you're logged on and I'm your buddy on the other side of your computer screen, you know, if you decide to just walk away or stop working on that one, you know, memo you've got to knock off in the next hour, I'll know it. And you know that I'll know it, so maybe you won't get up and walk right. away from your computer in that next hour, and you'll actually get it and done. And maybe even just like showing up to your desk at 8 a.m. Exactly, I mean, because that other screen. person's going to be there right. waiting for you. Does it work? I mean, you know, for the people that our reporter talked to, it, they said that it really worked like beautifully. One guy that she interviewed who works remotely, has a, has a part-time permanent job but is remote, right. and also runs his own business, this thing really regimented him. It, he logs on at 8 a.m., you know, he gets a lot done, he's far more productive, and he ends in the afternoon earlier so that he can then, like, you know, get to other tasks connected to the running of his business. It sounds like so, it's not too expensive a month or it depends, Focus, right? Yeah, it depends. I mean, there are different price points for okay. the two. You know, so um, Cave Day is a, is a different format in that you can do it in person. They have spaces in Los Angeles and New York where you can actually show up. But theirs is also one where you can log on. And they're much more bigger commitment, more okay. hours, more intense maybe projects that you need people to help you sort of, you know, again, find that motivation. Right. So it, it sounds, it sounds 
sounds kind of like, wait, is this all it really takes? But in a way, it is all it really takes. I think we're going to see whether how much these work. They're very new outfits. Yeah. Um, a couple of Focusmate has definitely attracted some funding that they shared with us, a um, million dollars so far. And Cave Day has not revealed how much they've brought in. But I think that we're at the stage where we're going to start to see more interest in, in companies and outfits like well, this. And, and you guys do a nice job of sort of putting this on a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense right. of like... We had offices, then we kind of dispersed in, in many ways. Right, but like hacker spaces. Right. Then we moved to the shared workspaces, right? And that gave rise to WeWork, and we see what that led to. Now there are a lot of these clubs, clubs now like The Wing, and uh, there are similar ones where you know, you're know you maybe going to bring together a group of like-minded people. The Wing is geared towards women. It does more than just bring you together to work. It does events and talks. And so this is just another sort of evolution in this, we've got so many people out there working on their own right. who, whether they need support or ideas or people to brainstorm with or whatever it is, you know, can tap into these various right. resources. We'll talk about these peer support groups because that's the other kind of layer that you guys get into. It's people who are stressed out and you really get into kind of how you're feeling, how you're dealing with situations. And exactly. These are, people, these are your peers. And there, yeah. are, there are companies and groups that are getting together to help It that. seems to be happening a lot more in Silicon Valley and San right. Francisco. Um, and these are targeting a higher level executive, I would say, so far. You know, they're sort of um, the next generation Young Presidents Organization. Young Presidents Organization, you might have heard of it, yeah. has been around for many, many, many decades. And in the last five or so years, maybe 10 years, has really been trying to kind of um, become a little bit more current and deal with the digital age. But there are startups now in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco that are all about bringing, you know, very under intense pressure, you know, founders of companies, CEOs um, together to really um, be among peers. So that's why I think, you know, it's attracting that level. And, And to try as best they can to actually open themselves up and unload and talk about how they're really doing, how they're feeling, where they think the pressures are coming from. Um, there's so much that uh, that I think really prevents people in those positions from doing that sometimes, right, right. Ta- time being a big factor, right? right. Um, and so these are organized as like dinners or in ways that also feel like maybe they're doing something else in addition to going and being among a group of peers and sharing their feelings. Well, and one of the things you point out in that story is essentially that they're set up in such a way that if you're at it and you feel like you're just sort of networking, you're kind of doing it wrong, right? I mean, this is meant to establish relationships, maybe at a deeper level, and you give a nice anecdote about people essentially saying, how are you doing? No, really, how are you doing? Right, you know, exactly. and, and this idea of, level, right? you know, actually getting to know people. My favorite part, I have to say, of this section uh, is the <laughs> humility quiz. And so you're going to have yeah. to go back and listen to our daily radio show to see Carol and me uh, take it. But it has uh, some pretty useful questions. Did you take I think. it? Um, I-, I took it. I'm not going to reveal, you know, <laughs> how humble or not I am. But people should take a look at that. Humility is you know, kind of a buzzy thing right now. I mean, yeah. there is real research, academic research, research by groups um, like uh, Hogan, which we got this quiz from that does personality assessments that suggests that humility and being humble is a great quality for a leader, that these are people who don't want the spotlight and who are willing to give credit where credit is due. Um, I don't know how much of that we really have out there. You know, we have evolutions of the types of leaders we've wanted as the heads of our companies, right? Right. If you think back to the 70s and the 80s and the types of CEOs that we had and charisma and brash and really things that maybe shareholders were maybe more encouraged by. Um, But that led to maybe a lot of promises that couldn't be kept and risks. So now it's going the other way and it's saying you can humble. That's Demetra Kassanides, and that's our strategy section this week. And I think it's so pertinent right now because, Jason, more and more people are working at home on their own, and they're getting a little lonely. So there are companies and apps to help you deal with that. Well, and maybe a little less productive, and so they need someone to keep them honest, someone literally on the right. other end of the Did camera you do this? Did you to do basically this? Like say, I do to you. <laughs> exactly. Get back to work. He became the majority owner of the Brooklyn Nets only last year, just before controversy that would threaten the NBA's relationship with its most important overseas market, China. Jason, we've talked so much about this. We've talked a lot about him, and he's only becoming more prominent 
previously prominent in the world of business, now very prominent in the world of sports. We're talking about Joe Tsai, and we're talking with Ira Boudway here in New York City. Phenomenal profile, incredibly timely. Take us back to October Mm -hmm. when this guy has to come out really for his first public statement as the majority owner of a major team amid a controversy. Right, and it starts with, as people probably remember, the Daryl Morey tweet, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeting solidarity with the protesters in Hong Kong, deleting it, but the whole thing gets going. And uh, Joe told me he was in his apartment in Hong Kong, uh, and he gets a call from the NBA, and they say, you know, this is an issue. There's already a lot of reaction on social media in the mainland China. Like, we're, we're monitoring it, but this could be a thing. And, and, and he's, he's in a great yeah. position, right? Here right. you think about someone who understands China. Right. Great is relative. Great. Right. <laughs> great. He's in a very interesting position, so yeah. So what was he thinking at the time in terms he's of how he was basically like, I am, I have to say something. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'm Chinese, born in Taiwan, do business, live in Hong Kong amid the protests, you know, own an NBA team, newest NBA owner, big market, yeah. do business in China, you know, I'm, I'm, and he's flying to Shanghai in a couple days because the Nets are playing the Lakers there. So he basically felt like he had to come out and say something. And so he says something, mm-hmm. and as with all, just about everything in this case, mm-hmm. not everyone's happy with it. Right. But what was ultimately the reaction, and what was the effect on him and the team? So he comes out with this letter that he posted on Facebook that says basically everyone needs to understand how Chinese people are going to feel about this. And he basically sort of spoke for all of them, or it said he was speaking for all of them, and said, you know, this is really a third rail issue there. We're talking about territorial integrity, and he couched the Hong Kong protests as a separatist movement. And that was the sort of controversial thing. That's the framing the Chinese government uses, not always the framing the protesters use. But he wanted to say, look, this is why this is so sensitive and delicate, and you've got to be careful. Um, and he says, basically, he got a lot of people saying, thanks, I didn't know this context. Right. Uh, there were a lot of people who were saying, look, you're just parroting the Chinese party state line here. Um, and he, you know, he stuck by it when I talked to him. He said, look, I really think it, was, it is a separatist movement yeah. if you look carefully. And so, uh, you know, and, and it's unclear, you know, there are people who suggest, well, look, he has to say that. He can't alienate. He has a lot to lose. Right, Alibaba. By alienating right, Beijing. Right, exactly. And I, so I put that to him and he said, no, I spoke my mind. That letter is what I, what I believe. So. And so remind us why he is as candidly as powerful and, mm-hmm. and rich as he is. Right. This is a guy who came to this country, went to Yale, right. scraps his way onto the lacrosse team, right. I think, and then meets a guy named Jack Ma. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. It's in a, a lot really of remarkable story. And there's really, you know, in talking to a lot of people, he knows a lot of people, in, you know, very powerful people in the world, and they say there's really nobody like him in terms of that position that he occupies. So yeah, he, uh, born in Taiwan, comes to the U.S. at age 13, goes to a prep school in New Jersey, uh, very, you know, elite institution, and uh, there he starts really quickly assimilating, learns English, loves to play sports, plays lacrosse, plays football, goes to Yale, gets on the lacrosse team there, uh, makes a ton of friends that way, uh, goes to law school at Yale where his father had gone, was the first Taiwanese graduate from Yale Law, and then works his way along. He's at a shop called Investor AB, looking for private equity deals in Asia, based out of Hong Kong. Somebody says, hey, you should look up this guy Jack Ma. This is 1999, right after that they basically started Alibaba, he goes to meet him and says, I want to throw on my lot with this guy. And the rest, you know, is history. But he became the sort of the bridge to the U.S. and the West for Alibaba. Well, and in many ways, that's a really important point to emphasize because Jack Ma is this larger-than-life character, you know, Mm -hmm. so uh, sort of out there Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Joe seems to be the guy who goes into the boardrooms, Mm -hmm. talks to the private equity guys, the venture capitalists, Mm -hmm. to Wall Street, to everybody. He really smooths the way in many ways for what Alibaba becomes. Right, and that's what Jack Ma told me when I talked to him about it. He said, you know, this. there were times where I'd be in a room with a bunch of finance types, and Jack calls himself street guy in, in the U.S., and I'd, I'd make them all upset with something I said, and then Joe would smooth it over. Yeah. Um, and that that was, he relied on him to translate personally the annual letters that he would write to shareholders in the world. Joe was the one who took Jack's vision and said, this is 
what I, I know what you mean, and I'm going to make sure everyone outside knows what you mean, too. And that's Ira Boudway. He's got a couple stories in the magazine this week. One's about gambling. This one is about a guy who made a pretty good bet on buying an NBA team. Yeah, he did make a good bet, but talk about his timing because Oof. he became the majority owner, as we heard from Ira, just before that controversy that really um, put to test the NBA's relationship with China. This is a huge market for them, an important market. It is in many ways the future. And uh, Josiah is sitting at this great intersection yeah. of kind of understanding East and West. Well, exactly. We often say someone is uniquely positioned. He really is uniquely positioned in this case. With some 200 venues, including cafes, hotels, casinos, live music, and the rock shop in more than 76 countries, Hard Rock International is also, Jason, going to be on everyone's radar for the big game. First, of course, because the Super Bowl is going to be played in Hard Rock Stadium. Right. And there's going to be a big ad. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be one I predict that we're going to be talking about in part because one of the stars is J-Lo. She's also performing at the big game. Jim Allen is here with us, back with us, I should say. Uh, great to see you. A big week, obviously, for the whole enterprise in a lot of ways. Tell us what this means for the company. Oh, amazingly excited about, obviously, Super Bowl week and having a commercial, you know, as part of the halftime festivities for uh, Super Bowl, the 100-year anniversary of the NFL at Hard Rock Stadium. So tell us, though, about why, I mean, you guys have not done, right, an ad uh, at the Super Bowl. So why why is now the right time? Well, you know, it all kind of came together with the opening of the world's first guitar-shaped hotel, the 100-year anniversary of the NFL, Hard Rock Stadium, and it just seemed like if we're going to be involved, you know, let's get involved on a big-time basis. But Jim Allen, tell us about the Super Bowl audience. What is it about that audience that you know, man, this is a place you want to run an ad? The most watched event in the world. Over 100 million people see this particular event. That's just on the TV broadcast itself. When you look at then online, it certainly creates a lot more media impressions, you know, for a global basis for the Hard Rock brand. And that's something we're very excited about. So tell us what you can about the ad. <laughs> Obviously, you want to leave some tell for the surprise today. Actually. Tell us everything you can uh, about the ad because, because of that audience, people, as you know, and I know we know some of them. Right. There are people who tune in just for the ads. They don't even care about the game. So the stakes are high, as they say in your business. Well, we didn't want it just to be a spot about the brand. So we kind of created this storyline. Obviously, hiring a director and producer like Michael Bay speaks for itself that we're committed here long term. So the spot is almost like a mini story that then eventually takes you to our websites, our relationship with J-Lo, and frankly creates you know the introduction to the $2 million sweepstakes, which we'll be announcing. So Michael Bay. So is it going to have like an Armageddon Transformers kind of feel? <laughs> it with definitely will have a Hollywood feel. <laughs> yeah. I promise you that. Did you guys really spend about $5.6 million to make this commercial? Well, or what, Frank, t- Give us an idea. Well, I, I can say we're north of $10 million all in. Wow. wow. Right. Was that a hard check to write? <laughs> well, frankly, the spots themselves yeah. you know, are approaching that. And, yeah. you know, candidly, we're well north of $10 million yeah. all in. And so, Michael Bay, tell us how he gets the nod. He lives in Miami, I think, and so he's got some connections here. Well, I think we wanted to create something that was special, right? And not just because of all the amazing movies that he's directed, but also did a lot of music videos. So he certainly understands the brand. Right. Certainly being in Miami made it a little bit easier as far as proximity, you know, to the guitar-shaped hotel. But frankly, we did look at some other candidates, and he by far was the one we were hoping for. And when he said yes, we were certainly very excited. Yeah, it's really cool to have him and I can only imagine how much fun it was to work with him. What is this a bet on, um, Jim? Is it a bet on the hotel business? Is it on online gaming, which you guys have been moving certainly aggressively into? What What is it about for you? What do you hope to get out of it? Well, I think the Hard Rock brand... Um we know that you know coming up on our 50-year anniversary is one of the most recognized brands in the world. But we want to continue to position it as a brand of entertainment. And obviously, the Super Bowl is much more than a football game. It's about entertainment when you think about people coming together in houses and all the different things they do. So being part of this was something that was very important for me to position Hard Rock as not just a brand of hospitality, but a brand of entertainment. But what do you hope that in terms of people say, oh, Hard Rock, I didn't know that they, I forgot that they're doing this or they're doing this? Well, we are certainly 
certainly hopeful that it'll drive some foot traffic to all the locations on a global basis. But I, you know, I don't think it's about quote unquote internet gambling. I think it's more about the brand itself, which obviously has many different sectors that we're looking for additional foot traffic to come to our facilities, both in person and then certainly online through, through the online retail or internet gaming, et cetera. All right. So speaking of foot traffic and eyeballs, a lot of people are going to be walking in and watching a game that's held in a stadium that you named. You paid, I believe, $250 million for the, for the naming rights. No small chunk of change. What was the – obviously, this is going back a little bit, but what was the thinking behind putting your name on that particular stadium? You know, we had been approached about this many times, and um, we looked at it, and we said, no, probably not for us, because we were concerned. In um, different cities you're talking about? Uh, well, frankly, in, in many cities, yeah. but, but specifically in South Florida. Yeah. Um, and once we understood that Mr. Ross, Steve Ross, who's the owner of the Miami Dolphins and the mm-hmm. actual physical structure itself, was committed to really create something that was more than just a football stadium, that piqued my interest. And, you know, Steve would say that it was a rather interesting, you know, back and forth between him and myself. But we were really excited when we saw he wanted to do things other than just football. So whether it's the Rolling Stones, you know, with their last show there, Beyonce, Jay-Z, U2, Formula One, you know, the Miami Open moving, you know, obviously from Biscayne now to Hard Rock Stadium. It's really an entertainment destination. And once we were convinced that was going to be part of um, of the script, not just the football, very, very excited. So tell us a little bit about that back and forth if you can. We know Stephen Ross well. He's a tough businessman. You're a tough businessman. So what were you really sort of haggling over at the end of the day? I don't know if it was haggling, but I think it was more about making sure that we understood what the entertainment commitment was going to be, obviously then tying that back to the actual dollars associated with the sponsorship. And then most importantly, we did not want to do this on a short-term basis. We were in and we were all in, um, or we didn't want to end up in a situation where we've got a five-year sponsorship and then hypothetically the name changes again. So, you know, people are going to know Hard Rock Stadium for the next, you know, well, actually, we we're already three years into the deal but for the next 17 years, and that was very important to us. So what does it mean for the future stadium? I do feel like there's more challenges for people time, new fans, younger fans. They want a different type of experience. So what does it mean for you guys in terms of what you'll be doing with that stadium going forward? 20 years, commitment, that's a long time. So what's the future? Well, you know, I think like in any physical building, you know, there's always a conversation about reinvesting in CapEx. Mm-hmm. And if we look at Steve's incredible success, you know, look at the Hudson Yards here. I mean, obviously, he and his companies have a long track record at continuing to reinvest to create a world-class product. So frankly, that was something that was very important to me, um, which we believe the, the same will continue at Hard Rock Stadium as we move forward. Even if you look at what's happened since we actually signed the deal, we certainly knew that Super Bowls were a strong possibility. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is guaranteed because obviously the NFL has to approve that. Um, but it was very clear in the contract, which the NFL was aware of, that if a Super Bowl occurs, then certain financial and economic things may or may not you know, happen with the relationship between Mr. Ross and ourselves. We, we believe the same will happen as we continue to you know, grow the partnership on a long-term basis. And do you have any sense of how many Super Bowls? I mean, obviously, they don't go too far out, but I mean, you could get multiple in, uh, in that period of time. Well, right? first of all, there's been more Super Bowls in South Florida than anywhere else right. in the United States. Um, it's just such, the, it's a, such an ideal place for the Super Bowl because obviously Miami is an international gateway city, tremendous amount of hotel rooms. You don't have to bring in cruise ships to try to put people right. you know, for a place to stay. Um, the Qatar Hotel, all the amenities that we offer at, at Hard Rock, we just think it's a natural. So we're very hopeful that many more will come in the future. So what about some of the other properties? And I'm thinking about Atlantic City. I've, I've spent some time down there talking to um, your team and, and other folks. Um, you were pretty critical about what's going on in Atlantic City recently in terms of the city itself, the safety. Um, how, first of all, tell us how the property's doing. Property's doing very well. You know, um, first year of op- full, first full year of operation yeah. actually rose to number two in the marketplace in gross gaming revenue. So that's something that we were very proud of when you look at the amazing brands like Harris and Caesars, Tropicana, Gold Nugget that have been there. You know, Caesars has been there for over 40 years. So right. um, huge database, you know, to go up and compete against that in the first year to get to number two is very important to, to us. Ms. 
is it a different type of individual who's coming to Hard Rock down in Atlantic City versus what yeah, we've seen in the past? No, no doubt. We, we certainly focused on entertainment, you know, live 365. Right. I mean, that was really about creating, and not just music, right? So whether it's comedy with Harry Mandel, whether it's with the Needlander family with all the Broadway shows we're doing, right. and frankly, really exceeded our expectations. I think it's a real compliment to the Hard Rock brand, the Needlander family, but frankly, Atlantic City, because the, the numbers we did with Jersey Boys were really, really strong. So now we're going to do four Broadway series this upcoming season. Uh, as far as the town itself, it, it's not that we feel it's quote unquote unsafe. We just feel as though that Trenton, the CRDA, you know, unfortunately the mayor was arrested again. You know, we've seen this so many times. Now is the time to come together to say, look, we've had a company like Hard Rock invest over $500 million. A lot. Let's live up to what we said we're going to do to take the next step together. You did tell AP, you said, frankly, the town's in worse shape today than it was when we bought the building. When you're in a resort environment where safety and security is so important. If the city can't get something fixed as simple as the street lighting, then maybe a change is needed. I mean, Correct. it's frustrating. Yeah. So, the, and, and specifically, street lights, you would think that the local municipality would be handled that. And if they don't understand that if you don't keep up with street lights, then safety can become an issue. But to be fair, we haven't seen crime issues at Hard Rock at all, to be fair to the city. But frankly, if you don't fix the street lights, you're going to have crime. That's Jim Allen, the chairman and CEO of Hard Rock International. Um, man, their organization is huge in terms of hotels, cafes, of course, the stadium. They're in 76 countries. So if to talk about the big game with him, but also get his perspective on the global economy. Absolutely. I mean, he really is at the center of so many things and every twist and turn of the global economy, he's got to have a take on. And we did catch up with him for quite a bit of time here at headquarters. It's a wide ranging conversation. You can check that out via podcast. It's this week's Business Week Extra. What's the go-to destination for Chinese mainland shoppers? The anti-Beijing protests in Hong Kong, well, they have definitely dimmed its allure, Jason. Well, it's been a huge shock to the system in many ways because people aren't showing up to shop and it's starting to really play through the retail scene there. Jim Ellis oversees all the business coverage for the magazine. He's here with us. Tell us about retail, especially luxury retail in Hong Kong. Well, one of the things that's always marked Hong Kong is that it's been the shopping, or it was the shopping mecca of uh, you know China and of Asia. And But what a lot of people didn't realize was that a big boost for Hong Kong came from the ability of mainland Chinese to sort of go there and do their shopping. It was their mall, basically. And that was great for uh, the last 20 years. The problem is now more and more of the shoppers who need to come to Hong Kong are starting to worry about coming there. I mean, the protests have been very difficult for Hong Kong. Big reason is that a lot of mainlanders feel that the, A, that it's dangerous, B, that you know, people who live in Hong Kong are unpatriotic and are very anti-Chinese. Right. And therefore, they're like, why should we go and give our money to these people who don't even want to be part of us? Well, it is dangerous, right? There's reports of various mainland Chinese being beaten up, right? There, so they there, have, really there have been press reports, but also the government has been encouraging those press reports. And so um, it's... All the Hong Kong p- government? Yes. It's all part of a, um, uh, of, a, of, a, of a way to show that, you know, right now Hong Kong is an outlier and China, the rest of China, is the sort of patriotic type. Having said that, though, Jim, like some of the numbers, I was kind of, I kept writing on my notes, wow, statistics, in yeah. terms of how much retail sales, high-end luxury retail sales are down in yeah. Hong Kong. Well, one of the reasons is that because mainlanders account for so much of the tourism to Hong Kong, it's 80%. I mean, a lot of people think people from all over the world are coming in there, but 80% of the travelers to Hong Kong are from China. And a lot of them are high-end, high-end shoppers who go there to shop at Gucci, go there to shop at you know, LVMH. The problem is that they'll come in and spend a lot of money and then go home. Now, two things have happened. One is lots and lots of retailers are opening up in cities across China. And now you can shop at luxury retailers in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Guangzhou. You don't have to make that trip. Right. The second thing is that Hong Kong always benefited from being the air hub that all rich people or business people had to go through to get in and out of China. That's faded. The government owns three airlines and they have set up three hubs in other cities across China. And so what happens is that nowadays high-end 
shoppers don't have to go through there. So there has to be a reason for them to go to Hong Kong. And it might be because there's more restaurants, there's more whatever. And now with the trouble from the protests, they're not even doing that. Yeah. So therefore, you have these huge drops. I mean, so retail sales have dropped in a single month in November. They dropped by 25%. And in high-end goods, like watches and things like that, it's over 50%. Now, that's sort of shocking. It's hard to imagine huge you know, half of your business sort of going away overnight. But right. that's what's happening there. Well, and it's leading to stores mm-hmm. shutting down. I mean, and not just one here, one there, yeah. but, you know, dozens of locations well, for certain stores. Yeah, well, overall, and this includes high-end and low-end, and a lot of this is um, sort of low-end stores, but 400 stores closed in Hong Kong in the last six months. But then there have been some high-end names. You sort of think that, you know, that cohort will continue to shop. But um, Louis Vuitton is closing a store. Prada is closing a store. Lots of people are saying that this business may not be coming back simply because even at the protests end, you know, the damage has been done reputationally and you can shop closer to home. Plus, you can shop online. So uh, what are you hearing in terms of, you know, the expectation of Hong Kong as a tourist destination? Does it just go away? I mean, I know the mainland Chinese are very important, but overall, will people start going, stop well, going well, it, there? It, it doesn't go away. It just becomes less of a shopping-only destination. Okay. It has the advantage of having mountains. It has beaches. It has Disneyland. It has all sorts of other attractions that hadn't been pushed. You know, and so what happens is it becomes, as someone in the story says, it has become a more holistic travel destination. It can't be just the place that becomes China's mall. Yeah, kind of a reminder to that economy, right? That they right. can't just be about high-end shopping. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting story. A look at something that we all can understand because yeah, totally. that shopping element uh, crucial to the economy. Jim, thanks. Thank you. And that's Jim Ellis, business editor for Business Week. He has spent a lot of time in Asia. He understands that market really well. And Mm -hmm. wow, so much going on in Hong Kong. Well, and you have to wonder, these workers that are being hit so hard, they're at the lower end of, you know, the economy in Hong Kong, not making a lot of money. If they leave, will they ultimately come back when things improve? So we'll have to see what happens. So real estate sales have never been better on Palm Beach, apparently, Jason, except for a cluster of homes. We're talking about the Barrier Island right there off the coast of Florida. The president, his primary resident, President Trump, Mar-a-Lago, we're talking about. And yet there's a cluster of homes right around Mar-a-Lago. They're for sale, but nobody's snapping them up. What's going on? James Tarmy headed down there. Tough assignment this time of year to head to Palm Beach, but somebody's got to do it. got to go down there, what spend some time. What can I say? <laughs> I'm willing to take on the hard, <laughs> hard assignment. One for the team. Won't stop. So remind everybody, I mean, we know Palm Beach, it's where a lot of financial types live. Um, incredible homes. Well, they don't live there. That's right. They have homes well, there. Well, actually, Their official residences. They, they, Carol is correct. They they now all yes. live there because of the extremely generous, i.e. 0% right. Um, right. Uh, personal income tax. So a lot of people do live in Palm Beach. Um, it's this very surreal place because um, it's incredibly thin. Most of the time, um, there's no more than two or three lots deep between the bay side and the ocean side. It's, and everything has hedges, and there are palm trees, and everything is pristine, and people look like you would imagine that they look, and dress like they would imagine you dress, and, it's, and so forth. And it's expensive real estate. It is very expensive, and it has only gotten more expensive this year, where it has been white hot. Um, Three homes last year sold for approximately $100 million a piece. Um, but, yes. A piece? A piece. Oh, my God. Yes. So the, it's, it's really flying off the shelves. Empty lots, teardowns, mansions, Who's everything buying? in between. Everyone is buying okay. is the answer. People from all over the country are buying, but also... People within Palm Beach are trading up and trading down, right. and it's it's very much this kind of weird microcosm where real estate is constantly being changed hands. And so, within and this entire yeah. ecosystem, <laughs> there is around Mar-a-Lago, which is this former estate for Marjorie Merriweather Post. It's this colossal piece of property in Palm Beach that cuts bisects the entire island. Um, so, around this 
estate, there are a cluster of unsold houses. Some have been on the market for years. Some are just coming onto the market. But it's a crazy anomaly. Things like this don't usually happen. And so the question is why? Right. And you have at least a couple people saying, nothing to see here, move along, it's just a coincidence. And yet. And yet. Um, so what did you find when you went down there? What are the consistencies among the properties? What did you take away? So this, to give some context, there is something that's called Billionaire's Row, which is directly south of Mar-a-Lago. And that is where, if you can believe it, there are a lot of billionaires. Directly north of Mar-a-Lago is the estate section. These are all real estate fabrications. So but terms of art. Yes. Yeah. But... They are, in whatever way, reflective of the fact that homes are oftentimes in and around Mar-a-Lago around five to twenty million dollars. Right? Not cheaper. This is not a cheap place to live. And what's striking is that there's a tremendous amount of new construction. There's a tremendous amount of recently renovated buildings, mm-hmm. and they are all for sale, and they are not selling. And so. I talked to a variety of brokers. Um, Everyone had different solutions. Everyone had different uh, diagnoses. Um, The one thing that everyone agreed on was that it had absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump, Mm. who they all refer to as he, as in when he is on the island. No one refers to Trump by Trump's name. Seriously? It's eight, like he, his, with a capital H. And tell us about Mar-a-Lago. You went there. Um, yes. You know, we see it in pictures. We hear about it yeah. all the time. The president talks about it uh, quite a bit. What was the vibe? Um, I would say that the vibe was extremely relaxed, extremely friendly, um, and extremely desolate. Because mm. uh, this is the high season right now. Yes. And I sort of assumed that it would be kind of a... Uh, bustling place, right. um, especially in December leading up to Christmas, which is when a lot of people are down there. Um, and I didn't see much bustle. To be fair, I was there during breakfast. Maybe it gets hopping in the evenings. People sleeping in. <laughs> Maybe, but I was there at 11. So. Okay, okay. People sleep um, away. He did sleep. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I got that wrong. Yeah. This one. Guilty. Um, but it's, it's really, everything is kind of very carefully manicured. The staff is super genial. There is a picture of Donald Trump in the men's bathroom. Um, all fun facts. But, and and the, the, the trash cans even have little kind of golden feet. Everything is as you would imagine it. But it's not this kind of place of outsized lore that, that reflects the outsized lore that's associated with it. Right. Well, you were surprised too just how easy it was to get in, right? I think you assumed that I there would be a lot of security. There was none. Yeah. And, you know, this actually led some level of credence to what all the brokers were saying, which right. is that, you know, many people have talked about in, in publicly about the inconveniences associated with Trump's presence um, and how there's traffic delays and how the Secret Service screw everything up for everyone. But everyone actually there was like, it's really no big deal. And experiencing it in microcosm, of course Donald Trump was not there when I was there, um, it really wasn't a big deal. And it was actually, I would say, mildly shocking how easy it was to kind of get in and out and how little anyone cared about me. And to be fair, the president wasn't there. Right. You know, so it right. wasn't sort of locked down as it, it probably right. would be if he was there. One thing I thought was interesting, and I will highly recommend that folks check this out online and in the magazine, because the, the, the properties, like I had so much fun just kind of reading through mm-hmm. the specifics, but some of the homes that because of their proximity to Mar-a-Lago, they waive the initiation fee, right, to the club. You still have to pay annual dues and other things. But that's part of buying some of these properties, right? So there is an adjacent road called Woodbridge. And when Trump bought the property in the 90s, he had to convince residents that it was something that they should get behind and not try to block in town councils and so forth um, to turn this property into a private club. And the way that he sort of greased the wheel was anyone who lives on Woodbridge... If their initiation fee, which is now, I believe, over $200,000, right. is waived, and it's also your grandfathered in. Right. So anyone who owns a house on Woodbridge gets to be a member at Mar-a-Lago. But when you sell the house on Woodbridge, you rescind that membership. So it goes with the house. Uh, it goes with yes. the house. So, Interesting. So it's, it's 
a really sweet part of the package so long as you're there. And that's James Tarmy. I mean, anytime we sit down with him, we have a blast. He talked about uh, his time down there, looking at the homes, getting into and walking around Mar-a-Lago specifically. But it is fascinating that this is a real estate market where there aren't a ton of homes. They're in demand typically, except there are a few that are kind of sitting out there not selling. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. Real estate, it's more complicated maybe than you think. It's been two years since the Supreme Court ruling that opened up the gambling industry outside of Nevada. And in one of this week's feature stories, Ira Boudway, well, he actually became a gambler. Yeah, a degenerate gambler, it feels like, depending on who you <laughs> ask. That you know, adjective he's you know, not doing the things he needs to do around the house because he's so focused on the line. He joins us here in New York City. So this is quite an experiment. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg funded, Bloomberg approved, we should point out. Why and how did you do this? Uh, Well, we had seen this uh, new handicapping service, Tout, they call it, which is somebody who tells you what to bet. Uh, And frequently they do that for a fee. And there was this new one started by a former major league pitcher named Michael Schwimmer who said, this is going to be legit. Like, Touts in general don't have a great reputation. A lot of scam artists out there. He said, we're going to do this for real. I've got $23 million in backing. I've got Bill Miller, Wall Street money. Uh, We're going to publish our picks. We're going to give refunds if it doesn't pan out. This is going to be, like, the real deal. And I said, oh, let's let's see. Let's try it out. So I spent a week in New Jersey where you can bet legally, bought a week-long package of his picks, the company's Jambos, and uh, and gave it a shot. How does it work? Give us an idea of what it costs and your experience with yeah, it. Yeah, so I did the smallest package, $250 for a week. You can spend a lot more, $3,000 for 17 weeks if you want. Um, okay. And they send picks. They alert you every day about 11 a.m., that day's picks. really depends. could be 5, could be could be 40. Uh, and you try to hustle out and find a bookmaker who will give you the bet they're, they're saying you should take. And right. they, they've checked. They have their sort of bookkeeper of record, their bookie of record, that they say this bet's available. But that stuff moves, as I discovered, really quickly. So I was, you know, okay, let me get on DraftKings. Which let me impacts get on the trade then, right? Right. Sometimes you don't want to make the bet anymore. Right. 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 Uh, so that's the issue for basically every handicapper is the better you are, the faster the market moves uh, and the harder it is for anyone to use your advice. And that was ultimately what you discovered is that this company was quite literally the victim of its own success. It it almost, it feels like, spoiler alert, almost like put itself out of business in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple ways. I mean, that's sort of their version of events. So they said, as I was doing this experiment, they said, we're going to stop selling picks at the Super Bowl. And, And their explanation is, lines are moving so quickly after we put out our pick in other words, betters and, and bookmakers are responding to our picks. It's making, fluid, right, it's not static. These are fluid markets. They're yeah. not the same at every bookmaker. Uh, and so this is no longer working for customers. And I saw some of that myself. There were a lot of bets I couldn't get. Right. Like I got 111 picks. I wound up betting like 75 of them. Um, but there's, it's also possible that you know, this service what just wasn't, just wasn't that good. panning out, right? Yeah. That yeah. the picks were not so valuable. They just weren't that valuable, right? So it's hard to say exactly why, but they are saying, look, we're not going to sell anymore. We have different business plans. We're coming out with new things in the future. Did you make money? I did, but by sheer luck. So those bets that I didn't get to make out of that 111 are mostly losers. Okay. So the company's picks for that 111 period down, and and a better who had been able to get every bet in would have lost. Uh, I was lucky. The bets right. I didn't get in, losers. So I finished up about sixty dollars. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Ira, I mean, you know the business of sports so well, and you understand so many of the inputs, as it were, mm-hmm. around how people are consuming sports. You know, but we, you and I were talking uh, before we came on set about a great story you did last year about John Skipper and mm-hmm. DAZN, and so everything's changing around the business of sports, and yet this feels like mm-hmm. it's right in the center of all of those mm-hmm. things. Two years on, as Carol said at the top, like. What do you make of sort of the, the legal sports betting scene? Uh, I mean, it's, it's growing fast. I think the money is in there for operators. So we've seen $15 billion in bets in legal markets since the ruling May of 2018. These are the DraftKings and the FanDuel right. of the world. Is that a world. lot? Give us perspective. It's not. It, when okay. you've got to remember that money wagered is not revenue for the book, right? Okay. So the revenue for the book is, is a small fraction. That's just right? the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not a huge industry yet, okay. but it's growing fast. Um, and as more states come in, I think you're going to see an effect of that momentum once you get sort of more than half of the U.S. population, then big national companies are going to say, this is effectively a right. national market, get in there. Well, it, and also, you've had 
professional leagues sort of tiptoe into right. this a little bit, right? And right. obviously there, there could be a tipping point there where right. they are more open to the idea that this is happening. They basically have already flipped. They, they're okay. saying, we are going to sign deal, marketing deals. We're going to try to insist that our data, our official data is mm-hmm. used and that we get paid for it. Right. Um, and the NBA has really led the way yeah. in that, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they've had a lot of success in using data as the wedge mm-hmm. to say, it's our data. It's our official data. You need to use it, and you got to pay us for it. So I love in this line that in the story you talk about handicapping and how it you know has often been a shady business. Mm-hmm. It still feels like a shady business. There is a lot, and and the internet, as with everything else, has sort of multiplied it and morphed it in weird ways. So there are a lot of scam artists using Twitter and yeah. and that to basically say I you know I'm infallible. Uh, right. I my picks are always right. They're usually somehow shading the truth, if not outright lying about that and then trying to get you to pay a little money over Venmo, you know, for picks. And that's Ira Boudway. He covers so much in the world of sports. We talked to him earlier about Joe Psy. That was a fascinating look at a really important figure. Well, one of the big elements in sports right now is sports betting. It was a huge topic when we were in Miami ahead of the Super Bowl. So Carol, I want to play part of my conversation that I had with Chris Paul. I should note, this was recorded here at Bloomberg headquarters a few weeks ago before the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. And yet when I hear this interview, it's a reminder of the strong influence Kobe had on how modern players, this generation of players like Chris Paul, really approach the game and their businesses. Here's your conversation. So Chris, let's start just talking business. How do you define your business world? How do you sort of put it all in perspective? Man, um, first and foremost, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have an amazing team around me. Uh, It's never just me. I have an amazing team, uh, starting with my older brother, who's been with me since day one, obviously, since he's he's older brother. But um, through NBA experiences, through business, through learning, uh, have tried to learn as much as possible. Obviously, being involved with the union has taught me a lot, too. So just trying to be a sponge. And so when you think about kind of identifying opportunities, is there an overarching theme that you're going for? Because I would imagine people come to you with ideas all the time, come to you with opportunities. What's the screen? You know, it's funny. When I was younger and I first came into the league, you used to hear about endorsements. Oh, this player is endorsing this and endorsing that. Uh, As I got older, I started to realize that the the vetting process for any business deal or anything, it has to be true to who I am and, and true to what I believe in. And so um, there's been partnerships. There's no such thing really now as endorsement right. deals. There's partnerships and things that um, I really believe in and products that I use or that, you know, I really want to see come into fruition. And how often do you say no? A lot? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, it's it's one of those things where um, I am a people person. I love to, you know, engage and talk, but you have to learn to say no or at least have somebody on your team that, mm-hmm. that can say no. So it feels like you are building a platform, as it were. You know, I look across your media activities, your partnerships, your investments. How do you sort of break that up in terms of figuring out, you know, you want to focus more on media, you want to focus more on more traditional partnerships, a state farm, a Nike, or, or, or what have you. How do you sort of bucket it? You know, it's funny you ask that because it's almost like being an athlete. When you talk about playing basketball, I don't just say that I just shoot. I don't just dribble. I don't just, uh, you know, block or dunk. Well, I don't really do that much anyway. (laughs) But but I try to stay as well-rounded as possible and try to dip in different avenues, you know, whether it be entertainment, whether it be uh, focusing on nutrition, which is a, a big part of my life and you know, this is my 15th year in the NBA, so I, I focus on, on a few different things. And so how much do you think about, dare I say, a post-NBA career? And, and how much of what you're doing in business is about setting you up, not just financially, but, but almost mentally for what that career looks like after the league? Yeah, there'll never be anything, I believe, that drives me the way basketball is. You know, you never say, like, I'm ready for it to to be over. I don't think any athlete ever says that. But I'm always just trying to learn and be a sponge. And uh, a lot of it is that, is 
you know, sitting here, even having the conversations with you, learning and talking. And uh, I have a few mentors out there that I'm constantly on the phone with just trying to understand their world. You know, a lot of people want to know, what is it like when you hit a game winning shot? You know, me, I'm like, what was it like when you closed that deal? How did you have these hard conversations? And I think those experiences help you for the business world. I want to talk about a few specific deals and and partnerships that you have, one of which we've spent a lot of time over the last year talking about is Beyond Meat. You were early to that. Uh, You were plant-based as of last year, I I believe. Clearly, this is something you believe in. But tell me about it from a business perspective. Yeah, so uh, Ethan from Beyond Meat, who is amazing, and I had an opportunity to get involved in it. And I actually got a chance to executive produce a, a documentary called Game Changers. Right. And so as an athlete, you're always trying to figure out different ways to, to get an edge, to, uh, whether that's training, whether that's working out. And once I seen Game Changers and, um, you know, I saw what the other athletes were saying, I was like, hold on, I, I got to try this. Yeah, I got to try this. And obviously Beyond Meat has has been amazing. And like you said, you had the uh, Beyond Meat sausages. Right. And- <laughs> I did. I cooked it last <laughs> night at home. And, and for me um, – it's just it's been life changing for me and the way that my body feels and the way that, you know, I can bounce back, uh, back to backs. And it's, you know, you know, a lot of times you hear people talk about diet, diet it has to be a lifestyle change. Right. And for me, for me, I would say it's helped. So from a business perspective, you've also as a player seen a lot of different cities, a lot of different business cultures in a way. And, you know, I think about L.A., obviously, I think about Houston, I think about Oklahoma City. Now, at this point, what have you learned from sort of those different markets from a business perspective? That's a great that's a great question. And. Uh, I've had a number of teams that I've played for. Obviously, when I was with the Clippers, uh, Steve Ballmer, you know, took over as owner of the team. So I got a chance to see how he dealt with different things. Being in Oklahoma City um, has been amazing also. One of the first things that we did that you don't see a lot of times around the league is the day, a few days before training camp, we had a huge cookout. A huge cookout where everybody in the organization brought their families. Okay. You know, and in a league where a lot of times it's just ball, 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 it was nice to, you know, see uh, the guys who handle our tickets with their kids and with their family. And like I said, it's just learning. Right. It's learning because uh, in any business, I think most people want to try to create that family and that culture. And I think that was really nice in Oklahoma City. And so what is it like playing in sort of a, a smaller market in, in a lot of ways? I mean, much has been written and, and talked about with Oklahoma City from a basketball perspective, specifically hitting way above its weight. I mean, this is not a, a, a new phenomenon, but I do wonder what that experience is like for you. Uh, it's been great. And Probably I'm a little biased because I actually started my career in Oklahoma uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Right. You know, I spent two years there and that fan base, nothing like it, nothing like it. The way they support you uh, night in and night out, um, you know, they may call it a small market, but the fans, they have big hearts and they're behind you night in and night out. And so um, it's, it's nice. I've been able to experience both and. You know, I love both of them. Well, it's also interesting, I think, even from a player perspective, to think about sort of the legacy of players that you're obviously now a part of that have gone through that franchise that have raised it to a national prominence that that maybe you don't see even in other sports. And I I tell you, uh, to be part of that Oklahoma City uh, history and culture is special. And like I said, uh, myself with David West and a number of guys, we got a chance to start out there when – they were basically auditioning for a yeah. team. And then, you know, Katie, Russ, Nick Collison, James, all those guys come through. And that city showed what it was capable of. And, you know, a team will be there probably forever. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, your role in the union. And I want to talk to you about that because obviously a very important position Uh not one without controversy, not one without some conflict and, and, and conversation. Right. What's the biggest thing you've learned from from holding that role? You've been in that job for a while now. Yeah. Uh, 2013, is that right? That sounds about right. <laughs> like, uh, May feel longer, but... I've learned so much, so much. Um, I've always said this. Uh, I went to college for two years. Uh, no business class could teach me the on-job training that I've learned as, as president of the union. Um 
from the other players on the executive committee. You know, you just learn how to talk and communicate with people. Uh, Michelle Roberts, our executive director, she's taught me so much. Other people that work within the union. The conversations I've had an opportunity to have with Adam Silver, you know, just constantly learning and really understanding the business of the game. Because as a kid, when you're in the backyard, you're just like, you know, I'm MJ. I, right. I want to play in the NBA. You never think about the business of it. And so right. to learn that has, has truly been um, just it's so valuable. Right. You mentioned Michelle Roberts. I know that some succession planning is going on there. Where are you at that point? What, what do we see next? Um First and foremost, it's not just Michelle, you know, it's myself, you know, yeah. Andre Godala. We have board members and stuff that have been in this position for, for a while. And that's why I say the importance of mentors yeah. in, in businesses. And uh, uh, one of my, you know, huge mentors in, in Iger is that's one of the first things he said. Bob to Iger, me. CEO of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one for, of, for those of us who don't just call him Iger. One of, yeah. one, of, one of the first things that he sort of, you know, told me years ago is that succession planning is real. Yeah. And if we want the union to be a real business, you know, most big businesses have succession planning. So that's all it is. Right. So what, what's the most important element of succession planning for that particular uh, part of the organization? Uh, just making sure that whoever the next person in line is knows about the conversations that are being had now. Right. And so that's what I'm doing also with other guys that's on the board mm-hmm. is trying to find out who may be interested in being the president after me. Right. You know, and just making sure that, you know, if there's conversations being had now, they're involved in them. That way, if they do take over, it's not just brand new. And that's NBA star Chris Paul, you know, Beyond Meat, State Farm, so many things that he is constantly right. thinking about taking care of his family and sort of being there for them. All the things that happen in the modern life of an NBA player. Well, I think, and it's interesting, you're seeing athletes, it's no longer just, here's my name, put it on merchandise or what have you. They're very, very involved, I feel like, in the investments that they're making. Well, and even the terms that he uses, he doesn't do sponsorships, he does partnerships. It, right. It's a much more holistic approach, to be sure. Well, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio, live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.